welcome everyone to another episode of Nerd RX podcast and I am your host Barkha. And today we are going to talk about immunoprecipitation and to walk us through what immunoprecipitation is, we have Erin Hughes. Welcome Erin to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I was really excited for this opportunity. Uh, thank you so much for being here with us. Uh, so before we go into the topic, uh, why don't you introduce yourself to our listeners? Sure. So as she mentioned, my name is Erin, and I have a bachelor's in science in biochemistry and molecular biology from Ottery Bine University in central Ohio. Very, very small campus, um, like 2,000 people. So don't be surprised if you haven't heard of it. <laughs> I immediately went into a PhD program under the Molecular and Cellular Biosciences Umbrella Program at Wake Forest University in North Carolina. And that's where I'm currently a fourth-year PhD candidate in the Biochemistry and Molecular Biology Program. Um, and I have the pleasure of getting to study a cannabinoid receptor interacting protein, or CRIP1A, and its interactions between the G-alpha subunit of the heterotrimers and trying to figure out exactly what's going on with cell signaling. Okay, wow, that's great. Uh, so Erin, um, would you mind telling us why did you pick immunoprecipitation and what got you interested in it? So immunoprecipitation is one of those tools that um, can be used pretty much for everyone. But specifically with what I'm looking at, it's really helpful because it's going to let us look at protein-protein interactions or protein interactions in general, whether it's between two proteins or between protein, DNA, RNA, etc. So for my project, when we're trying to figure out how this protein, CRIP, is interacting with other proteins, how is it going to be you know, modulating cannabinoid receptor activity, and all of that, it's been a really great tool um, just because it's going to let us look between two different proteins. And uh, we have immunoprecipitation versus co-immunoprecipitation, which is in, when you're looking for actual complex, which has also been very helpful. Right. So why is immunoprecipitation important and what is it actually used for? So it's really important because um, it's going to let you look for known or even just suspected protein interactions in vivo and in vitro. So you can use um, cellular lysates from whatever cell line you want to use, whether it's a cell line that has endogenous levels of proteins or if it's a cell line that you know you've transfected in your protein. Um, and because there are so many proteins within the body, within the cell, and they're all doing very, very different things, looking to see how these are interacting is going to let us downstream kind of modulate those interactions and um, even, for example, use it as a druggable target. So eventually, you know, looking at how does this interaction occur and can we stop that protein-protein interaction from happening and maybe we can, you know, help with pain control or any sort of other um, health effect that you might want to go for. Wow. So it sounds like you can use this technique in a lot of different um, projects. I mean, different types of experiments. It's super flexible. Um, you can, you know, it's use it for a lot of different things, a lot of different areas pretty much as long as you have an antibody to a protein of interest and some beads, you're good to go. 
yeah antibody i think is one of the issue with a lot of things because sometimes you don't have a good antibody and you're stuck there that's actually been one of my major problems recently when i've been trying to do my meter precipitations for my project um because you have to make sure that that antibody that you have is actually going to be to an epitope that's going to let you bind to your protein of interest. So if you have a protein that is, for example, binding to another protein or a complex on the N-terminus, and then you have an antibody to the N-terminus, that's probably not going to be able to be used as well because you're going to be blocking your binding site of your complex. So that makes it a little bit more difficult sometimes. And trying to get, you know, an antibody for a commer- commercially available antibody for a protein is sometimes also very challenging. I'm currently waiting on a custom antibody coming from Nepal. I am too waiting for an antibody. I've been like, it's not immunoprecipitation, but I've, I'm working on my Western blots and the CB1 and CB2 receptors are like making me cry. I'm like, I still have a good data for CB2, but CB1 is... I'm trying so many antibodies from different uh, places, but none of them have actually worked for me. So I can tell you the CB1 antibody we use is from Everest Biotech. Oh, I'm going to talk more about that after this episode. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, CB1 has been a problem for me. So hopefully this works. Uh, thank you so much for the tip. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think... Um, in terms of Western blot, I my issues are first, obviously, finding the right antibody and then the figuring out the dilution. So do you have the same issues? Uh, so that is something that, you know, it's kind of thought about. But um, mainly for immunoprecipitations, you add typically one microgram of your uh, antibody to you know, <laughs> protocol I have from previous graduate students is between 100 to 500 micrograms of your protein. So in my case, that's going to be total protein within the cell because we're trying to look at this like endogenously within the system of the cell. Okay. So usually, I mean, that's just a typical. Um, I have tried for lately, I've been having problems getting the immunoprecipitations to work 100% of the time. So I've tried changing around the um, amount of antibody used, but typically one to five micrograms of antibody. Okay. Okay. That uh, is good that that is figured out. So let's talk about the steps itself. So why don't you give us an overview for the entire process of immunization? Just an overview, like how do you begin and what do you expect and what are the various steps involved? Sure. So typically you're going to start with, you know, a protein lysate or homogenate or something, basically something from cells or even purified recombinant and a protein that has your protein of interest. Um, And if you're looking for a complex, then, well, you want to make sure all your other proteins are also in there. Um, So once you have that, you're going to want to make sure to do some sort of Bradford or a BCA, just something to get a rough estimate of how much protein you have in your solution. Right. Uh, dilute it down as needed or just make sure you don't have way too much protein compared to your antibody. 
So once you have that, you're going to add your antibody, you know, typically one microgram, which oftentimes is only like a microliter or two of your, especially with commercially available antibodies based off of concentration. And so this is where the protocols can kind of differ based off of experiences. But in my experience, we have figured out that if you leave the protein plus antibody mixture in the refrigerator overnight rocking, you tend to get better binding. So I leave that solution in the fridge overnight, so at least 16 hours. after six, It doesn't seem to make a difference if it goes a little bit longer than 16 hours, okay. as long as it's in there long enough to, for things to kind of reach equilibrium and give that antibody a chance to basically go sort around and find exactly what protein you're going to be looking for. Then the next day, I add, we use agarose beads. Um, which are protein AG plus beads, and those protein AG beads are going to bind to the antibody. I usually let that go for a couple of hours at room temperature, and then that's when you can pull, basically spin down in a centrifuge your beads, which is going to have your beads attached to the antibody attached to your proteins. Um, From there, you can uh, do Western blot analysis and then stain for your proteins of interest. You can also use magnetic beads, and I know a lot of people have had good success with that. Um, That's actually my next change to my protocol to try and get things 100% working is to swap over to magnetic beads, which are supposed to be really helpful too. So are these beads like secondary antibodies? Uh, They kind of are. The protein AG is going to bind to the uh, IgG an IgA of the antibody itself, so the long and short chains. Um, so in some ways, it is like a secondary, just attached to an agarose or magnetic bead. Oh, magne- magnetic bead, this is the first I've ever heard of. Could you tell us a little more about that? Yeah, so they are, you know, instead of agarose, which is what I typically use because it's cheaper, you have a, they're basically a little tiny magnetic beads balls if you will that have the protein ag attached to them same Mm -hmm. as your agarose Um, and then you can use a super magnet to basically pull the beads off to the side so that you can um, basically pipette or loot off anything that you don't want in your final solution because you're just looking for what's stuck to your beads so usually you're Mm -hmm. trying to get rid of the stuff that didn't which is going to be your supernatant in that case so it's a really great way to because the beads are stuck you know so closely to the side of your tube to make sure that you're not you know pulling your beads out of solution too early or um, mixing your bound you know what's stuck to the bead versus unbound or supernatant they are more expensive which is one thing that some people don't typically use them for but my Mm -hmm. experience has been they're pretty awesome oh wow so after you're done with the immunoprecipitation and you have your beat you go for a second technique like you mentioned western blot yeah so does that mean so when i do western blot i usually have my brain homogenates and I do a BCA to quantify how much protein we have. And then I just run my Western blot. So with this immunoprecipitation, what I am getting an idea is that you are kind of purifying it. You are just extracting your protein of interest, right? Yeah, that's right. So it's like a 
just trying to get that one specific protein out of one, you know, out of a solution that has thousands of proteins. And in my mm-hmm. case, I'm technically doing a co-IP where I'm looking for a protein complex because mm-hmm. we're trying to see what CRIPS interacting with specifically in our cells. So it's just a good way to kind of pull out your only protein plus whatever's hanging on to it versus Western where you have way more proteins. So your Western blots would look super clean. Yeah, typically they are. You get a very strong um, band of interest for your proteins. Uh, Low background. um, Yeah, just it increases the signal actually quite a bit. Right. Yeah, I would imagine. Wow. Now I'm considering uh, leaning to this uh, a bit more because the bands we get are super faint. And we have a lot of background signals. So I think this is something that would help us. So um, so just out of curiosity, for example, if I am trying to isolate CB1 protein, right? And I use an antibody in the immunoprecipitation and then, for example, a magnetic bead and I isolate and put it on the Western blot. So do you use the same primary antibody for immunoprecipitation and the Western blot? So I have in the past, but that, um, depending on your type of, uh, it depends on if your antibody is covalently linked to your bead or not, because usually when you're trying to get your protein to basically pop off of your bead, you are going to heat it or you're going to use low pH or just something and my experience has been our antibody then comes off too, okay. off the bead as well. And it ends up being run on the um, Western. And some people it doesn't bother because the heavy light chain can run at a molecular weight that's not going to interfere with data analysis. Mm-hmm. But in my case, what I'm looking for actually runs at the same molecular weight as the antibody. So typically my primary antibody, I try to use a different species, which Makes it kind of interesting sometimes when you're looking for multiple proteins. We recently have tried using a chicken antibody, which actually works remarkably well. Wow. Uh, yeah, I haven't tried chicken. The only antibodies I'm working with right now is uh, mice and rabbit. And I don't know, like I'm trying to find out CB1. They only have rabbit CB1 everywhere. Yeah, luckily, we have a company that has goat CB1, which has been fantastic because it really? gives another, you know, another species for us not to have to worry about cross-contamination with. Yeah. Oh, wow. That would be super nice for me as well. Well, uh, thank you so much for that description. And I can see how you can utilize this technique in so many different ways. So what is co-immunoprecipitation? Because when I was actually reading up something on immunoprecipitation before our episode, I came across something co-immunoprecipitation. So co-immunoprecipitation is when you're looking for a protein complex. So not just two proteins, but a whole bunch of them, if you will. Um, So I can use my research as an example with CRIP. We're looking to see if it interacts with G-alpha eyes. So the G-alpha subunit of the heterotrimer. Now, when we immunoprecipitate looking for CRIP and beta, it suggested that CRIP's also interacting with G-beta. So we have to kind of consider if co-IPing CRIP is going to get us, you know, both G-alpha and beta, 
as well as potentially gamma, and even looking to see if CB1 isn't there. So CoIP is going to be looking for your actual complex of proteins, um, because we know a lot of times in cell signaling and in general cell processes that proteins are not doing their whatever they're supposed to be doing on their own. It's often happening with some other protein in some other part of the cell. Okay. And has it ever happened to you that you're trying to uh, 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 do immunoprecipitation for one protein, but you end up getting something else? Yes, (laughs) it has. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And that oftentimes causes a little bit of a huh moment um, because you're sitting there looking at data that doesn't quite make sense. And mm-hmm. I think, especially if you're Western blotting, and then you think you, you know, think of your, think of using a negative control, and you're going to blot for a protein that you don't think should be in the immunoprecipitation, but does come up, um, has happened, and it kind of has led us to uh, want to send our samples off for mass spec just to see how much is actually coming down in our immunoprecipitations with CRIP. Okay, do you have any? alternative techniques that you can use instead of immunoprecipitation? Yeah, so since you're looking for a, um, you know, protein-protein interactions or things like that, you can run a BRET or FRET, which is going to be looking for fluorescent signal when two proteins get close together. I am, it's just things I have heard that I should be doing for my committee, so I have not really looked too too much into those yet and whether or not we're actually going to use them or have much information on them. What I do in parallel as well is I do cell imaging. So I plate my cells on cover slips and then stain for CRIP plus whatever antibody, you know, whatever proteins I want to be looking for and um, look to see if there's co-localization under the microscope. And I use a few other techniques as well. Typically, you can, I would say running in parallel, your Brett fret cell imaging, um, you could even take your immunoprecipitation and put it on, um, do mass spec with it after instead of Western blotting, just to get your exact molecular weight of whatever proteins are floating around in solution. And is this uh, technique user-friendly? Like how long will it take for a completely new person to learn this? So I think it's pretty user-friendly because there's a lot of protocols out there and even a lot of companies have, you know, their version of the protocol available. So there's typically a little bit of troubleshooting, but I would say it only took me probably a couple weeks to get really, really familiar with the technique. Now, obviously, there's always going to be troubleshooting with anything that you're doing in science. Always. uh, troubleshooting is what takes a while, but I think it's pretty simple because it's, you know, you're mixing beads plus a solution and doing a lot of centrifugations. The centrifugations get on your nerve after a while. Yes, yes, yeah. I think uh, troubleshooting is the main part of all the experiments. And I think you spend so much more time on troubleshooting than your actual results. It, you just have to get right once. <laughs> so... Troubleshooting is a big thing everywhere, I feel. Um, So let's talk about the advantages and disadvantages of this technique. Yeah, the advantages would be that it's very flexible, especially if you're using a 
just an agarose bead with protein AG or, or a magnetic one with protein AG that's going to be able to bind to any sort of antibody that you have in solution as long as it has an IgG or an IgA on it. So that means that if you're looking at a wide variety of different proteins or your project is very um, diverse, you can kind of miss and match, mix and match your proteins um, of interest with whatever antibodies you want to use. Now, the disadvantages being, like I said, sometimes your antibody not might not find the way that it needs to be, or your immunoprecipitation isn't working quite right, or you're just not seeing signal on your downstream, you know, imaging your quantifications. So there's this kind of pros and cons to it, just like everything. But I think my main attraction to it was being that I could pretty much look for whatever protein with whatever antibody I want to. And it's great for, you know, working parallel back and forth. So if you're immunoprecipitating for CB1, for example, and you find that it interacts with the G-alphas, then you can also immunoprecipitate with the G-alphas to see if you get CB1. So you can kind of work in reverse there. Okay. Wow. So have there been cases where immunoprecipitation cannot work? I have actually found that, at least with my methods, that certain detergents can block some interactions of proteins with the antibody, which is not ideal when you, um, because a lot of cell lysis buffers actually have, you know, detergent in them. That's how you burst open cells. Mm -hmm. So in that case, I've had a time or two where the IPs just didn't work. There was no signal and I couldn't figure it out for a while. Um, or, you know, your antibody doesn't bind to your protein like it's supposed to. That's the other case where it definitely wouldn't work. Okay. And this can be used even with tissue homogenate, right? And not just cell lysates. Yeah, I would imagine so. I have not tried that. I think it's something that my advisor and I have talked about briefly. Um, we currently don't have any animals or any brains for us to work with, but I definitely would say that you'd be able to do it. I think as long as your um, proteins are, you know, available for the antibody to find and bind. I don't see why it wouldn't. Okay, awesome. And uh, what would be the cost associated with it? Like, is this a technique that any lab can set up easily or is it expensive? I would definitely say it's very low cost. Um, especially if you're a lab that already has cells or brains or tissue homogenate already up and running on your day-to-day basis. Um, the ag- especially the agarose beads, so the magnetic ones can be kind of expensive, but if you're trying this initially just to see if it's a technique you want to use, the agarose beads are very, very low cost. Um, well, you know, science is expensive to begin with, but they're low cost in the world of science, um, especially if I think Santa Cruz Biotech has uh, protein AG beads for like $90 for a milliliter of them. And you don't use that many. So So that is another advantage, I would say. It's easy to set up. So I think my last question for you would be, uh, is there any interesting articles or protocols out there that I can link down in my description for our listeners to read up on? 
Yeah. So there was uh, when I was really digging into uh, co-immunal precipitation and immunal precipitation, I came across this methods in molecular biology paper from 2017 that's just very simply titled protein-protein interactions co-immunal precipitation. And I thought it was a great read just because it talked about how you know you can use genetic like yeast to yeast hybrid and biochemical so your co-ip methods um, to basically look to see what proteins are interacting together um, and it gave a really good protocol and background it was I think one of the first papers i ended up reading about so well with this i think we are going to end today's episode thank you erin so much for being here with us and explaining what immunoprecipitation is Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It was great talking with you. Likewise. And uh, listeners, I will catch you next week for another episode on this podcast. And in meanwhile, if you uh, wish to suggest, if you have any suggestions for any technique, or if you would like to join me on podcast and discuss a technique, please email me at barkha at nerdrxpodcast.com. And remember, it's good to be a nerd. Bye. Bye.